Can I name the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and God, Amen? Uh, good afternoon, everyone. How's everyone doing? Doing good? Sorry. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 So I was asked to get the lesson for the domain today. And so I thought that the best approach to pay for this. Uh, how can we build on the conversation that we had prior? And so a couple months ago, um, if you can recall, uh, we spoke about nativity, and in nativity, I just took one aspect of it, and we talked about imitating. And so, what we have before us now, just around the corner, is Great Lens. And so how can we build upon imitating as we approach the Great Lens? So building upon imitating, I thought, what can be more intimate and in closer proximity to our Lord than imitate me. And so, and so what we want to go now is a little bit further into the concept of consuming. So now Christ says, not only do I want you to imitate me, but I want you to consume me. What does our Lord mean when he says this? So let's see what he has to say about this. I would say a volunteer to read, but I don't think we can read that, correct? No? Corey, you want to give it a try? Oh, here's the mic. Whoever eats my flesh has yeah. eternal life. That's all I got. So it says, uh, <clears throat> most assuredly I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. I am the bread of life. This is the bread which comes down from heaven, that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. So a little bit of background narrative before we begin. So what's happening here is there's a dialogue that occurs after Jesus feeds the five, the 5,000, which was uh, today's gospel reading. So this is the next day. And so the multitudes are now seeking Christ for the wrong reason. They want to be fed more of the food, of the physical food. And when the crowd finally finds him, he corrects their intentions and by teaching them about who he is rather than what they are seeking after him. And so he explains to him, what does this bread of life mean? And he goes into a lot of detail. And in fact, I'm just giving you the end part of this dialogue. There's about 17 verses before this where Christ is speaking to the crowd that are seeking him. Okay. And you're, no you're going to notice here that during this teaching, Christ finds a very narrow opening, right? Just a small opportunity to gradually transition this crowd from a transitory bread and wine that feeds the body to the true nature of his body and blood, the divine Eucharist that feeds the soul. And so really what we're going to be talking about is what's happening after the gospel reading today. 
after he fed the 5,000 and they saw the miracle, what was the progression of that dialogue thereafter? And you're going to notice something towards the end of this verse that really changes the entire scope of what we once thought. And he says, And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. This changes everything. Because Christ is now instituting the sacrament of Holy Communion to the entire world by means of the church. That's how it's going to go and spread to the, to the rest of the world, through the divine liturgies. That occurs all the time, every day, specifically on Sunday. What he has said, we see it all the time. But you're going to notice that Christ took a slow process. He did not quickly tell him this sacrament. Right? He waited for this opportunity to naturally bring it up. And there's really two reasons why he does this. The first one, because he understands the difficulty of our limited minds. That we're still having fixation on the earth. This is why the multitude seeks him at the beginning, to get more of that food. Kind of like we saw the little kids do, even my own, rush to a buna to get that bread. Okay? And in fact, we see this when he, when he speaks in parables. One example, Nicodemus. Now, Nicodemus, we can recall, he is a Pharisee and a member of the Sanhedrin. He's a, of the Supreme Council. So in today's world, this would be a member of the Supreme Court Justice. So this very wise scholar could not understand the sacrament of baptism. And in John 3, Christ tells him this. Are you the teacher of Israel and you do not know these things? If I have told you earthly things, how do you not believe? And you do not believe, how would you believe if I tell you heavenly things? And here we come to the same, uh, the, 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 the same cross. There, there's going to be a point where we are not getting it. This crowd is not getting it. Right? And there's going to be a point where we come to this path where we're going to hit crossroads and we just have to say, we just have to believe. There's going to be a point where these people just have to let it go and just trust in the Word of God. The first one, and I'm going to kind of mention this during the sermon, is this is why Christ feeds the 5,000 the day before. To what? Increase their faith. It's a very blunt, a very forthcoming, a very obvious miracle. You can't miss it. And he does it again at the beginning of this dialogue. He says, Most truly I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. I am the bread of life. Sir, that do you understand before you understand? Do you believe in what I'm saying first? Do you trust me? Do you have obedience? Do you love me enough to hear what I am saying and believe them in your hearts? 
So he wants them to understand the mystery of the sacrament through their faith in him. And then it continues on, the dialogue. And it says, The Jews therefore quarreled among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly I say to you, Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. And so, what we're seeing now, he's saying, when you eat of my body and drink of my blood, the whole purpose is life. I am the life. I am the resurrection. For you to have everlasting life, you must consume me. And this is a very difficult saying to, to, to grasp, to understand, to acknowledge. And so what does he do? He ties in the everlasting life to the last day. And St. Augustine says it beautifully. He says that Christ is speaking to us of a twofold resurrection. The first one, when a person comes to faith, you must have faith first and passes from death to life. So it will be declare the truth. And then and when he dies in the flesh, will pass from death to everlasting life in Christ. When we resurrect, that's when we will taste the true everlasting life. So when we take Holy Communion, the Divine Eucharist, it is just what a little taste, a snapshot of how our life will be forever. It is a continuation, a remembrance of every week that we live here, that it's temporary, but yet, we always have the divine. That we get to taste that divine every week until our true taste of everlasting life occurs. So what we see here is the patience of our Lord gently spoon-feeding the impatient, infant crowd, baby bites, God bless you, so that they may slowly digest the knowledge of the mystery of the divine Eucharist. Then he goes on, continues, and you, you're going to see he says it over and over again. God bless you. And then what does that mean when he says it over and over again? When he says things more than once in Scripture, it's firm. It's, do you still understand what I'm trying to tell you? Kind of like when I'm a, you know, I'm a high school teacher, and when I reiterate something, it's probably going to be on the test. And so when Christ reiterates something, it's probably something we need to remember forever. Until our what? Until our last day. Until our second resurrection. So it states, For my flesh is food indeed, very clearly stated, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father. So he who feeds on me will live because of me. 
This is the bread which came down from heaven. Not as your fathers ate the manna and are dead. He who eats this bread will live forever. These things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, This is a hard saying. Who can understand this? When Jesus knew in himself that his disciples complained about this, he said to them, Does this offend you? Now, what we're going to notice here is there are two groups of people in the area. There is the multitude, which represents like the Jewish nation, and there's, there's the disciples. And what you're going to notice, they all murmur. They all complain that they don't understand. Why? Because they're all human. There's no difference between them. We're all of the same needs. We're all of humanity. So we all fall victim to this. That the reason we understand now is because we have been raised in this understanding. But it's very difficult to ask these two groups of people to comprehend what Christ is saying. It is a very hard thing. But there is a slight difference here. There is a very strong paradox in their reaction. So on one end, we have God's chosen elect people, right? The Jewish multitude. These individuals witnessed the miracles of the feeding of the 5,000 just yesterday. They were raised among the prophets, which we're going to get into. And they were grown to know and understand the scriptures. Yet, they are completely blinded by the prophetic message about the Messiah who stands right before them. Why? Why are they so blinded? Why can't they see him? Because they already put it into their hearts that anything he says is not truthful. They've already judged him before he even spoke. So, Unfortunately, they leave when they hear the word of God because of their inability to trust and follow the Lord. And there's many examples of this. The one that comes to my mind is the parable of the sower in Luke 8. Very powerful. And the Jewish crowd here represents the ones who throw their seed, individual, which represents Christ himself. The word of God to the wayside when they leave. They take him for granted and he is speaking to them in vain in their eyes. So Christ says, now the parable is this, the seed is the word of God. And I want you to see the parallels here. Those by the wayside are the ones who hear the word of the kingdom and does not understand it. Then the devil immediately comes and snatches away the word out of their hearts. Lest they should believe the first step and be saved. But the ones on the rocks are those who, when they hear, immediately receive the word with joy. <coughs> kind of like the miracle of the multitude, of feeding the 5,000. Immediately, it's so easy to believe at the moment of the miracle. Yet, they have no root in themselves. Who believe only for a while. Afterward, when temptation, tribulation, or persecution arises, 
because of the word of the kingdom, immediately they stumble and fall away. This is when Christ is teaching about the bread of life. They just can't hold on to it. Now the ones that fell among the thorns are those who, when they have heard the word of the kingdom, go out and are choked with the cares of this world, deceitfulness of riches and pleasures of life, bring no fruit of maturity and become unfruitful. These are the leaders of their synagogue and the temples, the chief priests, the Pharisees. And you can see it's trickling down to the people. Right? It's better to not have been born than to make an innocent stumble into the kingdom of God. And then we have the disciples. And who do the disciples represent? Right? They represent the outcasts, the Gentiles, tax collectors, fishermen, <coughs> misfit toys. Are I say us, right? We represent us. Who did not have the prophets and did not fully comprehend the scriptures because they lived on the outskirts of the holy city of Jerusalem. They were the ones that nobody saw. They were the ones that were not going to the synagogues or temples. They were just living their everyday monotonous life of work. Yet, they have complete, ignorant love and trust in Christ. Because they are fed the scriptures by the word himself. They are so in love with Christ for what he has said. That they now become the representation of the church. It's amazing. It's the ones that we don't see every day that live this Christian life, this life of Christ. And so what does Christ say about these disciples, about the seed that falls on the good ground? But the seed that fell on the good ground are those who, having heard the word with a noble and good heart, the disciples, understands it, and here's the big one, accepts it, accepts it as is kind of like what, what I was talking about in the sermon today. If God doesn't reveal it to us, doesn't speak about it, then we don't speak about it. We trust, we believe. There has to be a point of complete faith. And it's ignorant faith. It's, it's faith that we don't understand, but we love and trust in Him to hold on to that faith. Keeps it and bears fruit with patience and produces some 30-fold, some 60, and some 100. Describing the disciples. And then we see, and I have to bring up St. Paul because it's the church. So we see this in St. Paul's ministry at Rome when he's talking to the Jewish people, his own people that he so loves. And he can't and you know, I, I can't imagine how frustrating it is that they just don't believe, that they just don't understand this. Uh, so it says, when, so when they had appointed him a day, many came to him at his lodging, to whom he explained 
and testified of the kingdom of God, persuading them concerning Jesus from both the law of Moses and the prophets. From morning till evening, you see the imitation of Christ in St. Paul. And some were persuaded by the things which were spoken, and some disbelieved. That's the first step. It's that belief. So when they did not agree among themselves, they departed after Paul had said one word. What does that remind us of? The dialogue of the bread of life. They leave without fully listening to the entire message. So the Holy Spirit spoke rightly through Isaiah the prophet when he says, Hearing you will hear and shall not understand, and seeing you will see and not perceive. For the hearts of this people have grown dull. Their ears are hard of hearing, and their eyes they have closed. Lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears. Lest they should understand with their hearts and turn, so that I should heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that the salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. And they will hear it, because they're hungry for that bread. And when he had said these words, the Jews departed and had a great dispute among themselves. You see the same thing over and over. It happened before Christ, it happened during Christ's time, and it happens after he ascends. You see the same repetition. Then Paul dwells. Here's what makes him very Christ-like. After all that, he stays two full years in his own rented house and received all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching the things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence, no one forbidding him. This is what Christ does for every single person. You reject me, I'm not going anywhere. You reject me, I'm not going anywhere. I'm going to be at the doorsteps of your heart regardless of how you interpret what I'm saying now, of how you see me now, of how you resent me or despise me or crucify me, I'm still in front of your heart waiting for you to open that door, to let me in, and then you get to really taste the true everlasting life. So you see the persistence of St. Paul because he loves his people, just like Christ loves his entire human race. He is driven to open their eyes to salvation even though they are blinded. That's true love, the unconditional, relentless love that Christ does. When he goes out and he's the sower of the seeds and he just goes and spreads his loving kindness, his word of God to all, to everyone, regardless whether they accept it or not, he doesn't stop. He's relentless into going after every soul for the kingdom of God. That's our Lord. And I think Christ says it perfect when he laments over Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets, I still send them, but you're killing them. And those who are sent, who are sent to her, 
Oh, those who kill the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wing. But you were not willing. I tried and I'm trying and I'm going to keep trying. I'm willing. Christ is always willing. But sometimes that door is sealed tight. Your house is left to you desolate. And certainly I say to you, you shall not see me until the time comes when you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Just invite me in. Just ask for me by name. Just pray. Just say anything and I, I'm there. I'm, I'm, I'm waiting. And so, when we, when we talk about is this a hard saying? Does this offend you? He says things like this, or the disciples, uh, when Christ says this. You notice the approach he takes here. Most of us, I would, do one of two things. If I see the majority of the disciples leaving, of the apostles that were surrounding him are now leaving, because what he's saying, I'm going to go after them. I'm going to wrap them and say, oh, I'm just kidding. It's not a big deal. You know, let's talk about this. Or, I'm going to go to the disciples and say, hey, you guys aren't going anywhere, right? You're going to stay right here with me. But no, this is not what he does. After all that he has said, what does he say to the disciples who have been with him? throughout the entire ministry, who have been closest to him this time on earth. This, he's the only group that he is closest to. What does he say to them? Does this offend you? Okay. And then later on, which is in up here, he says, do you want to go with them? I'm not changing my mind. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. I am holding firm because this is the way to your salvation. So I am not going to be loose on this. I am going to be firm. There's no gray. There's no lukewarm. And this is what he said to the lukewarm church in Revelation 3, right? He says, you are neither cold or hot. Oh, how I desire that you are either cold or hot. But because you are not, I vomit you out. This is the way to salvation. Take it or leave it. Right? It's literally his way or the highway. The creator gets to decide how the created gets to live with him forever. And so we are definitely not offended. And in fact, we see this since the beginning of time. Even before the beginning of time, we see this. And so what I did here is um, I, color, I kind of color coordinated it. I made the red New Testament and the blue Old Testament. So the red is New Testament, the blue is Old Testament. 
that says, are we offended? No, because God repeats himself many times. This is not anything new. He has been trying to tell us this from the beginning, where in the Old Testament does Christ speak of this again? Is Christ in the Old Testament? Absolutely. All the church fathers, right? The beginning of our church is based on this. And here's what we see, and it's absolutely beautiful. You can see it in Exodus 12. When we read this, I'm going to go over some. I can't go over all of it. It will take a long time. But I'm going to go over four major points. And then I'm, I want you to see the parallel of the Old and New Testament. It's absolutely amazing. So the first one here is in green. It says, now the Lord spoke. Who's speaking here? Obviously, it says the Lord. But what essence of the Trinity is actually speaking? It's Christ himself. He is the Logos. He is the Word of God. And in fact, the church fathers say that in all the appearances and dialogues that occur in the Old Testament, it's Christ. Christ is the one that appears. Christ is the one that speaks. In fact, in the creation narrative, who is doing all the creation by speaking? It's Christ. Let there be light. That's Christ. That's why in John 1, it refers back to Genesis 1. Because what is St. John, the beloved, is trying to tell us? I am using the same three words in the beginning to remind you that there is no difference that in the beginning of creation is the beginning of the incarnation. There's no difference. I have always been there. And we see it when we read John 1. Right? It says, in the beginning was the Word, Christ. And the Word was with God, Christ. And the Word was God, Christ. He was in the beginning with God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, Christ. And without him, nothing was made that was made. It's always been about Christ. It just becomes more obvious, more blatant in the New Testament. So what the church fathers say is in the Old Testament, in the beginning, the Trinity was always there, but it hasn't been revealed to us until the fulfillment of the scripture, the fulfillment of the what? Of the Messiah. So, what we're seeing here is when the New Testament comes, now God is revealing more of Himself to us. So the prophecy just had to be fulfilled. And then it says in Colossians 1, this is very, this is very powerful. It says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. And this brings us to this, the second point here, where it's in blue. You see it in blue. It says, this month shall be your beginnings of month. It shall be the first month of the year to you. So why is he starting the calendar all over again? Why is he says this is the beginnings of month? Why are you putting a timestamp? Is now time has begun for you. Why is he saying this during the Passover? Because now salvation is at hand. Now the gates of the paradise have been opened to us. 
Make sense? Yeah? So that's why he's starting it over. Because it all begins and ends with Christ. Now we get to the purple. It says, On the tenth of this month, every man shall take for himself a lamb. And then at the end, it says, And keep it until the fourteenth day of the same month. What is this referring to? Palm Sunday. You know what Palm Sunday is? It's just what? A continuation of the Passover that has always been there. And how do we know this? Because of the date. When does Christ enter into Jerusalem? The tenth of Nisan. Nisan is, is what? Is four days before the Jewish Passover. And that's the day that all the Israelites select their precious, most valuable, unblemished lamb for their herd in the holy city of Jerusalem for the Passover feast. This Paschal lamb, and it's kept until the 14th day. And on that 14th day, what happens? At twilight, slaughtering. They slain the Paschal feast, the Paschal lamb, in the evening in celebration of the Passover feast. And what happens when Christ enters the picture? He doesn't change the Passover. He just makes it very apparent that it's me. And what you read here in Exodus is still about me. But now you can physically see that it is me that's being sacrificed. It's amazing. So some similarities, I can't go over all of them, so I'll just touch on some of them. So the Paschal Lamb were selected and preserved for a few days in the holy city of Jerusalem, just like Christ bears the sins of the world, remains inside the walls of Jerusalem for a few days. Very parallel. When it was due time for the redemption to be accomplished, Jesus entered Jerusalem with great celebration, as prophesied by Zechariah. says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey. So clearly, riding on a donkey. Very clear to us. So our Lord God and Savior Jesus Christ entered the holy city and stayed until his crucifixion. Day 14. And we do the same thing as Christians, right? Our Lord is sacrificed on Great Friday. And we remember celebrate this holy sacrifice with, with our Lord on the greatest feast day of divine resurrection. There's no difference. And then the last one, which is in red, you, you're going to notice that the word lamb is written there five times. And this, I, this is my favorite part. This is so beautiful. That each of the lamb reveals who Christ is sacrificing to in each of these lambs. So the, the first time that lamb is written up here, it says here, 
On the tenth of this month, every man shall take for himself a lamb according to the house of his father. So this is what? Christ sacrifices for the father. The second time lamb is mentioned. A lamb for a household. We are to what? Follow in his footsteps and sacrifice for our families. Third time lamb is used. Sacrifice for your neighbors. And it says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with, and with all your strength. This is the first commandment. And the second light is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. The fourth lamb is where it starts to get a little bit more difficult for us. Sacrifice for, our, for strangers, those who we do not know. Certainly I say to you, and as much as you did to the least of these, my brethren, you have done it unto me, right? Matthew 25. Every single person is Christ. Is our neighbors, I mean, is our enemies our neighbors as well? Yes, right? Those that surround us at work, in other places, those are all our neighbors. And there are some people we don't get along with. So our enemies is our neighbors. And what did it say about it? This revolutionized the idea. I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you, right? Do good to those who hate you. Pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. And then the last one, is the most precious lamb, which is what? Your lamb. It even says, your lamb shall be without blemish a male of the first year. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. So this perfect, unblemished lamb died for you, died for me. It's that individualized, personalized idea of what Christ did. He died for us. I think uh, I'm gonna pause here, we'll stop here. And uh, if I do continue, I'll just, I'll, I'll end up with here and then continue on to the rest, okay? Uh, any questions? Right, let's stand up for prayer.